1: Hello everybody and welcome to new books in gender studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jenny Kaminer about her new book, Women with a Thirst for Destruction, The Bad Mother in Russian Culture. This is uh, published by Northwestern University Press in 2014. Jenny is an assistant professor of Russian at UC Davis. Her PhD is in Slavic Languages and Literatures from Northwestern University, and the book that we'll be discussing today won the 2014 Helt Prize from the Association for Women in Slavic Studies. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you very much for having me. Could you begin, Jenny, by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Um, Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I received my PhD uh, in Slavic Languages and Literatures from Northwestern in 2006, and, and the book that... be discussing today um, was originally my dissertation project. And I am actually, I'm from a Ukrainian family, Jewish Ukrainian family who emigrated to the US in 1980. So I grew up hearing Russian and being exposed to, we were Russian speaking Ukrainian Jews. Um, So I grew up you know, exposed to the language and exposed to the culture um, on a kind of on a basic level. And then I uh, ended up pursuing uh, my BA and my master's and PhD in, in, in Russian literature and Russian culture. So that's how I originally came to be interested in, in the topic um, as a whole. And I've been at UC Davis since 2009. I had a couple of visiting positions prior to that. I spent a year teaching at the University of Sheffield in, in England in their Department of, of Russian and Slavonic Studies and before that, I was a visiting assistant professor at Oberlin College in, in Oberlin, Ohio. So I've been a, a bit uh, peripatetic in my academic career, but I'm happy to, to have settled here at UC Davis.
1: Excellent. So how did you come to write Women with a Thirst for Destruction? What a great title, by the way.
0: <laughs> you know, um, thanks. You know, it's interesting. I only realized after the fact that it has this non-intentional Almodovar uh, reference or or echo, um, which several people pointed out to me, which was not, you know, my intention um, in selecting the title. But the title is actually the, the first part of the title is actually a quote from, a 1991 novella by a well-known contemporary Russian writer um, named Dmyla Petrushevska, Um, um, one of the novels that I, one of the texts that I write about in in the last chapter um, of the book. And in fact, it was that book, which I read in my first year in in graduate school, that really got me thinking about this topic of, of bad motherhood and uh, if you know even just a little bit about Russian culture, um, you've probably heard the term Mother Russia, which gives you immediately kind of um, some insights into how central, how important this motif is for sort of Russians' self-definition for their thinking about themselves. Um, and I was recently thinking, or, or the, 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 my, sort of my choice of topic was recently reaffirmed Um, by a recent New Yorker profile of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, this oligarch who was recently um, released uh, from prison by Vladimir Putin. And they were asking, the interviewer was asking Putin, well, why did you, um, you know, after many unsuccessful appeals, why did you finally agree to uh, let Mikhail Khodorkovsky out of prison? And he said, well, it was not, you know, because I thought he was a model prisoner or anything. It was because... Um, I was informed that his mother was ill, was terminally ill, and a mother in Russia is something sacred. Right? So I guess I, I read this novella by Ludmila Petroshevska from the early 1990s that features this just really monstrous, kind of demonic, unstable maternal narrative. And it got me thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a bad mother in the context of a culture that has revered maternity so fervently, so um so incessantly, really from from its Christian and even pre-Christian um, roots, so I sort of I started kind of chronologically. My book spans um, from roughly the mid second half of the 19th century to the post-Soviet period. But I ended up kind of formulating um, my ideas sort of backwards. So the, the the post-Soviet chapter was the one that took form first um you know sort of structured around this one particular literary work and then it took on additional dimensions from there. And then I in the kind of the course of thinking about, well, you know, how do I make this into you know a larger project? What is the significance of negative maternity in the context of a culture that has revered maternity so so incessantly from its from its pre-Christian and Christian um roots? And so I started in the post-Soviet period and then the the, the question eventually kind of grew to what happens to firmly rooted, firmly entrenched cultural myths in periods of exceptional societal upheaval, societal shift. So that I think is kind of, that's the meta question that I think informs um, my research as a whole and certainly underlies uh, the foundation for for this book. So I start with the 1990s and then from there um, I picked two other periods that I think are um, you know, periods of exceptional societal um, upheaval and shift uh, in f- beginning from Imperial Russia and into the Soviet period. So I chose the 1920s, um, which is the decade. So everyone knows, of course, that the Russian Revolution took place um, in 1917. Um, one of the earliest pieces of legislation that the Bolsheviks passed was a uh, family law in 1918 that basically... Um, and if throughout all of the traditional foundations upon which the Russian family had been founded, um, Bolshevik state was obviously an atheist state. So they got rid of, of, of church marriage, church divorce. Um, if you wanted, you know, divorce was something that was extremely complicated and very difficult to to achieve uh, during the imperial Russian period. And uh, under the new Bolshevik regime, all you had to do if you wanted to get married or divorced was go to the civil registry office and say, hey, I want to get married, and if you're done being married, all you have to do is go back to that same civil registry office and say, hey, I'm done being married, I want to be divorced. Um, They got rid of the category of illegitimacy for children, um, a whole slew of really um, profound changes to this fundamental institution of the family that was, and all of these changes were designed to hasten what was termed the quote-unquote withering away, and that was exactly the term. Um, that the uh, Bolshevik ideologues from that period employed to, to hasten or to speed up the so-called withering away of the traditional family. So, um, uh, so that was why I chose uh, the 1920s as kind of the, the period immediately after all of these profound changes, societal um, legislative changes um, to the institution of the family had been implemented in the wake of the of the Bolshevik Revolution and before the the 1929 Stalinist revolution. So I wanted in particular to focus on that, that first decade of the Soviet state. And then, so I ended up actually writing the book, um, chronological writing the dissertation and then reworking the book, um, chronologically backwards with the 1990s chapter first. And then I wrote the 1920s chapter. And then finally I wrote, um, the, the, the earliest chapter, um, which focuses on two canonical texts from the 1870s. And my my choice of the 1870s, um, again, is motivated by sort of looking at a period that experienced, you know, dramatic societal rupture, the 1860s into the 1870s in in imperial Russian history is known as the the period of the great reforms. Um, So beginning most Fundamentally, most climactically with the emancipation of the serfs in 1861, so Russia had been a serf-owning society up until that point. And along with um, the emancipation of the serfs, you had all kinds of other very meaningful societal changes, you know, educational changes, changes to the legal system, the introduction of jury trials, um, uh, changes to the system of, of military conscription. So it was, and in the 1870s, you also had along with that, sort of, sort of had the beginning of um, of the uh, project of Tsar Alexander II to modernize the Russian state, to modernize Russian society. And then in the 1870s, so contemporaneous with the two novels that I focus on, you also have the rise of radical movements. Um, so the beginnings of political terrorism, um, that ultimately uh, culminated with the assassination of the czar in in 1881. Um, and uh, you know, lot, alongside um, the great reforms of Alexander II, you also had the emergence of what was called the women's question in in Russian society, Russian Russian history. So, during this period of sort of societal shift and fomenting of of, of of these fundamental changes, you had a reconsideration of, you know, women's role in society, um, the beginnings of, um, you know, women being allowed to attend higher education courses and so on to have access to higher education, um, you know, in, in a meaningful way that had not been, you know, possible up until that point. So you have sort of all of this discussion about, you know, what what is the role of women in society? Um, you know, what will the family of the future look like? What, we're, what will our society of the future look like, um, alongside, you know, these, the, the beginning of these radical movements that of course culminated in 1881 with the assassination of the Tsar, but ultimately culminated in the Russian revolution of 1917 sort of the beginnings of, of, of all of that upheaval, um, took place in this period of time where these two novels, um, are set and, and are written, um,
1: so, Jenny, before we talk about the the effects that these massive changes had on Russian families and particularly Russian mothers, can you just take us a little bit backward before the abolition of serfdom, before the great reforms? What were the principal values underlining the good Russian family and particularly the good mother? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question, and I, I
0: try to um, to address that in my introductory chapter where I trace the roots of the maternal ideal, the maternal icon, you know, back um, through uh, Russian orthodoxy, but even earlier than that to, to its pre-Christian or to its pagan roots. Um, so the pagan Slavic tribes worshipped a maternal divinity called Moist Mother Earth, right? And, you know, she has that particular... Um, maternal figure that uh, that maternal object of reverence has much in common with other pre-christian of you know, mother goddesses right for which we have evidence that, that that early european um people are revered um so you know the the embodiment of the earth as a womb and you know wielding all of uh, all of this power to be both creative and also destructive Um, So a a maternal goddess that was dual in a way that later maternal objects of worship um, were not allowed to be. Um, And my, my argument is that and I'm recapitulating arguments that have been made by other scholars is that when the, um, the, uh, the the Slavic tribes, when Rus um, became Christian in the 10th century, that much of what had been a component of, the worship of this pre-Christian maternal goddess, this moist Mother Earth, that that eventually migrated and became part of the um, uh, the Mother of God icon in in Russian Orthodoxy. And I um, I stress one very per- particularly important difference between the maternal icon in Russian Orthodoxy versus in in the Western Church versus in Catholicism, and that is that. You know, Mary, the mother of God in the Russian Orthodox tradition, was very much always a mother and not a virgin. So this aspect of, of virginity and all of those Catholic doctrines really trying to, um, trying to uh, institutionalize Mary's virginity, that was not so, um, not so central to, especially among you know, popular believers, that was not such a central aspect of, of, Mary's, um, of Mary's profile. Um, And so you see that reflected in visual culture from the medieval period, right? The medieval icons, you know, she's portrayed as a mother. um, Then with the virginity, much more um, secondary. Mm -hmm. And there are certain um, traits or um, fundamental qualities that were attributed to the Mary, the mother of God icon that became, and this is what I argue in my introduction, that became part of the myth of the good mother in Russian culture that all Russian mothers were meant to emulate. Um, and one of those is her mediating function, right? So Mary, the mother of God, uh, according to Russian Orthodox belief was meant to serve as a mediator or an intercessor right, between um, her, uh, uh, the sinful people on earth and, and the divine. Um, and she was meant to, of um, mediate conflict to sort of uh, to bring um, potentially conflicting elements into harmony, um, and that this becomes so. This aspect of of Mary as mo- Mary, mother of God, becomes part of the myth of the good of the good Russian mother that all Russian mothers were supposed to a quality that all Russian mothers were supposed to um, supposed to embody.
1: Okay. So how did the great reforms and the abolition of serfdom affect families and affect this vision of mother as mediator and as self-sacrificing? Mm-hmm. Um, so, well,
0: first of all, especially for um, women of the nobility and of the aristocracy, the great reforms meant that they could no longer, I guess most, <laughs> most fundamentally, that they could no longer rely on, um, uh, they, they no longer had access to, you know, reliable free um, uh, childcare. <laughs> so you start to see in the 1860s um, the emergence of advice literature and popular literature that is designed to actually, you know, help, um, you know, women of the nobility who might not have been so involved in kind of the daily tasks of childcare, sort of learn to to, <laughs> to actually take much more of a hands-on role. Um, than they had previously uh, been compelled to do.
1: Um, what about mothers, mothers form, formerly serf mothers? Then how did their families change? Um, well, usually, I
0: guess I would say perform. Prefer- the changes that serf families experienced were probably not as profound as one um, might expect. For the most part, serfdom didn't, the abolition of serfdom didn't really change you know, day-to-day life for the majority of serfs. Um, the sort of, the way that the, they were um, allotted land. Was extremely chaotic and inefficient, and you know most serfs didn't really end up. Most serfs ended up sort of staying put where they were, um, just without sort of the the oversight of of, uh, of, uh, of a noble um, landlord. Um, but I think uh, you know when you have the emergence of these. Um, you know, Radical movements who are kind of calling for the overthrow of the traditional family in its entirety um, alongside you know, conservative movements. So Tolstoy, for example, one of the authors whom, um, whom I analyze in, in, in my first chapter or in the second chapter, the chapter after the introduction, you know, was a fervent believer in sort of the sanctity of the family um, and conservatives of his ilk. We're calling for mothers, kind of, to serve as the bulwark against all of this societal instability, right? So you have these two really opposing poles, um, where on the one hand, you know, mothers are sort of endowed with this ability to to um, to save Russian society from all of this instability and tumult, and that they have to sort of embody. the the most, um, quote-unquote, traditionally Russian values, the most conservative values upon which Russian society was founded. Um, And they have to uh, teach their daughters to sort of reproduce uh, the hierarchy that has been at the foundation of Russian society at the same time that you have these radical forces that are calling completely for for the overthrow of, of the traditional family. And my selection of, of the two novels that I focus on um, in that chapter, sort of um, partially motivated by an attempt to sort of to bring to the fore, you know, two literary works, both with mother figures as, as, as central components to the development of the meaning of the text, but who are sort of approaching, or both who, who are presenting self-sacrificial mothers right, as, um, or the, the subversion, rather, of, of the myth of the self-sacrificial mother as sort of leading to the demise of, of these two very different families, but sort of the message that can be gleaned about, you know, the future of the family um, when one reads Tolstoy versus when one reads um, Celtic of Shedrin, quite quite disparate.
1: Tell us about Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. What kind of mother figure do you see there? What is the ultimate message of Tolstoy about motherhood?
0: Um, Well, Anna Karenina is filled with all different kinds of maternal models. Um, And in my analysis of the text, I look at some of the positive and some of the negative maternal models that, that he presents. But, of course, I spend most of my time tracing um, what I term the devolution of, of Anna Karenina and the devolution of her maternal emotions. So when she first arrives onto the scene, um, she's been uh, called by her brother, Steva. Uh, she's called from St. Petersburg to Moscow and Steva has been unfaithful to his wife, Dolly, um, who is the mother of, of, of five children. Right. And part of her, um so uh, uh, Anna Karenin has been called kind of in an attempt to broker peace between um between Steva and his wife who's just found out that he's cheating on her with the governess right and and my my reading of that initial encounter between um between those two mothers is that Anna is relying on her kind of her maternal the, the authority that um her maternity invests her with right? So she appeals very much to Dolly's, um, her maternal identity. She, she, you know, asks in great detail about her children, right? And she kind of secludes, um, there's a meeting where the two of them are are completely secluded, right? So it's just very much kind of, you know, it's two mothers, um, uh, with the rest of the world, uh, uh, pushed aside, right? And she's able, um, Eventually, successfully to broker kind of this peace between between her brother Steva and 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 his wife, um, but the fact that she uses her maternal authority for a morally ambiguous goal casts doubt or casts a shadow over her maternal identity from the very beginning, right? Because we know, if we read carefully, the narration um, quite clearly tells us that. You know, Anna has committed several um, untruths in the course of trying to broker this piece, right? I mean, we know from reading um, Steve's own thoughts indirectly relayed through the narration that he has no intention of, of quitting um, his philandering, right? <laughs> so the fact that she sort of uses her maternal authority to, to bring those two back together, but for um, a potentially uh, morally ambiguous goal sort of casts. Cast a shadow over her maternal authority, um, but she's presented, you know, early on as being a very um, devoted mother to her young son Siriosha, right? And what I do in my close reading of the text is to show how, after she, um, after she meets uh, Count Vronsky, how there is this internal battle that begins to unfold between her maternal emotions, um, which are very much. Um, inspired by, or I would say shaped by knowledge of what the maternal myth in Russia consists of, right? So she knows that a mother is supposed to be self-sacrificial. She knows that a mother is supposed to, you know, um, think about her children before and uh, beyond and above anything and anyone else. Um, But as her uh, affair with Fronsky unfolds, she begins to there's um, a battle, the way that I I write about it in the book, is that there's a battle in her memory um, between, and and I argue that memory has a very um, explicit and a clear moral component in Tolstoy, right? Um, That memory is not something that is morally neutral. um, And that if we trace sort of the presence or the absence of her son, Sirioja, in her memories, we can see how eventually um, her... Um, her desire for Vronsky wins out over her love for Sirioza. And what I describe as the sort of the nadir of Anna as mother occurs um, with the child um, whom she has with Vronsky, um, this little girl who doesn't get um, very many pages devoted to her in the course of the novel, um, but who, uh is very clearly a peripheral to Anna's existence, right? She's born out of wedlock out as a result of her affair with Vronsky. Um, She's very peripheral to Anna's motivations. Um, And the worst, I think the worst moment, the moment that portrays her um, in the most negative light as a mother is when um, the little girl Annie is falls ill and Vronsky is away um, on some business And the little girl, so she writes to, to Vronsky telling him that he has to come home. You know, this is toward the end of the novel where she's consumed with, with kind of jealousy and paranoia and, you know, all of those negative emotions that eventually climax with her, with her suicide. Um, But she uh, writes to Vronsky saying that he has to come home right away because the daughter is ill and then the daughter actually recovers and um, there are several sentences where the narration describes how Anna is disappointed, right? Because by this point, the daughter is really um, nothing but a pawn, right? In her struggle for for dominion, for power, for influence um, over over Vronsky. So I guess, in summation, and what I do is I try to, to kind of to to um, to trace sort of Anna's uh, how she goes from being you know, a good mother, a devoted mother. And there are several scenes in the novel that are quite poignantly um, relay the the tenderness and the genuineness of her maternal sentiments Um, early in the the text. um, And then after she has run off with Bronski, I think one of the most moving passages in the novel is when she sneaks into her son's Um, bedroom on his birthday, right? He's, he's been told that his mother has done horrible things and that he's not allowed to have any contact with her, but Anna, you know, sneaks into his room and, and they have this very tender exchange that that really transcends verbal communication, which in, again, in Tolstoy is something, memory is is something that has a very um, clear moral component and the most, um, Tolstoy presents verbal communic- or communication, rather, that transcends the verbal as the most privileged form of communication, and it's very clearly portrayed in that scene with her son that that they are able to to reach this higher level of of, of empathy and and communication. So I sort of, I, in my reading of the text, I trace, you know, what it, what is it that happens within her character that can explain or or motivates her. Um, her journey from, you know, from good mother to, to, to bad mother, to put it quite simply and how, by the time that she commits suicide, there are really no traces of her maternal identity left whatsoever. One of the last thoughts that, that go through her mind before she jumps under the train is she remembers, um, her girlhood and the, um, I think it's she's about to jump on the tracks, and it reminds her of when she was young and, and diving into a into a body of water. So by the time her last thoughts are of of a pre of a completely prematernal self, so by the time that the novel closes, you know that process has been completed to the point where her maternal identity has been completely erased, really from her from her consciousness.
1: Now, another female character in the novel, The Golovlev Family, um, Irina Petrovna, she also rejects self-sacrifice for her own self-interest, you argue, but for very different reasons, and that goal could be summarized quickly as, as the financial success of her family, but that ultimately corrupts her family. Now, in the interest of time, let my, may I move you on to the next period, Jenny, of um, the next major upheaval, in Russian history, the revolution of 1917, and what that changed for motherhood and for societal notions of what motherhood should be. Sure. Um, So,
0: my argument in the the chapter that's devoted to the 1920s is that you have um, the emergence of a completely new maternal ideal in this period of time. Um, a, A maternal ideal that that I summarize as the abandoning mother. Right, the, the title of that chapter is the abandoning mother as positive role model. So, the, the 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 overarching question of that chapter is: Well, how does um, maternal behavior that in the earlier time period, in in the time of, of Anna Karenina and of, of the Golovlyov family in Imperial Russia. Where the a woman who abandoned her children would have been unequivocally viewed as a negative figure, as someone who has violated um, the maternal uh, all sort of standards for for maternal behavior. So how does that um, get turned into something positive? And so I look at um, several popular texts. Um, so this chapter has a focus on one um, canonical, what has become as known as a canonical work of. of of the socialist realist mode, the novel Cement, but I also look at um, several much less well-known texts that were published in women's journals in the first half of the 1920s. Um, And I chart how a woman, how the, the image of a mother who abandons her children as long as it is in the service of the state, of the collective good, of the construction of this bold and bright and beautiful new society, how now... This woman is is um, is portrayed as 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 a positive model, as a model for other mothers um, to emulate. Um, so I look at several short stories uh, and one poem from from um, women's magazines from the 1920s. Um, and you know, neither of those texts are especially complicated, and they're certainly not kind of. Um, literary classics that will last (laughs) through the ages, but I think they're really interesting um, cultural artifacts from from that period of time. Um, And in these, my argument uh, in reading those two short stories and the poem is that they present, um, that each one presents, they were all published between 1922 and 1925 approximately, is that they they present a radically um, or uh, an increasingly radical vision of the de- denunciation of, of maternity. Um, so kind of climaxing in um, the poem, um, which I'm just trying to find uh, part of it that I can quote, because I think it actually it speaks for itself um, almost, you know, m- more <laughs> more articulately than I can speak for it. Right. So this is about. um uh, a woman who is so um, busy with her obligations to, um, to factory life and to uh, her social activity on behalf of, of the new regime that she doesn't have um, the, the, way the, so the, the way the poem describes it. She's no time to look after her son or to bring him up. By day, she's at the factory behind a machine, and then it's a meeting and off to bed, right? So it sort of establishes the fact that there are responsibilities um, that supersede those of motherhood that are more important for society as a whole than, um, than individual motherhood. But it goes on to present um, this dilemma as one that is very easily solved, right? So the state has stepped in and provided um, communal childcare options that alleviate her burden or her attempt to reconcile her maternal identity with her striving to to, um, contribute to the building of the new society. And not only does it present her her burden as being alleviated by the state, but it actually presents the state as a preferable parent, right, as being able to do a better job at raising her child than she herself could, Um, and in the morning to the workshop again, so it is every day, every year, but her breast doesn't yearn for her dear one. Her little son won't perish. Um, he's he's with the pioneer group, which is better than either mother or father. They give him good examples and prepare a steadfast fighter. Of course, this is in my translation, um, which is. In the original Russian, it rhymes, so it's much kind of zippier than than the translation that I was able to do. But it, you get the the general meaning, uh, meaning right? So that um, the state is actually um, better prepared, better qualified, better able to produce the kinds of citizens that are necessary for this new society than individual uh, individual mothers, right? So it's it's a brief window um, in Soviet. Uh, history where a, a completely transformed or radically new maternal ideal emerges, right? It has a very sort of short <laughs> short shelf life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the abandoning mother as positive role model lasts really roughly about a year before she's replaced mm-hmm. by other much more traditional um, ideals, models of, of Russian motherhood. But it is nonetheless, I think, a really fascinating um period of, of time to, to examine from the standpoint of this question of, of the uh, evolution of maternal ideals and maternal myths.
1: Right, it's such a massive paradigm shift. Uh, su- exactly. Suddenly guilt and innocence are nearly reversed, um, but this paradigm shift didn't last long. Didn't Stalin have something to do with it?
0: Right, well, when, when you have, after the Stalinist revolution, you have Um, much more traditional maternal ideals returning to the forefront. So you have um, the emergence, for example, of a much more in visual culture of a much more overtly fertile feminine maternal body. Whereas in the 1920s, you had um, in in incomparable visual culture, women represented in a much more sort of masculine um, uh, way. Um, And you have well, you have changes in policy that are certainly um, uh, central to to this shift that occurs in the culture. So, 1936, for example, abortion is outlawed. The, the Soviet Union was the first state to um, to make abortion legal in 1920, and that policy was reversed in 1936, and then reversed again in 1955, I believe 1955 or 1956. But in 1936, there was concern about um, a decline in fertility, a decline in birth rate. So you have the advent of much more avowedly pronatalist propaganda. Um, you have the introduction of, of, of the heroin mother um, who is celebrated in, in Russian visual culture and other forms of propaganda. And to be a heroin mother, um, you have to, you would have to give birth to 10 children, mm-hmm. right? So that was, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you, you know, you would you would get, I think, you know, some monetary support and also, you know, your picture in the newspaper or some other such thing. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's a return to a much more traditionally feminine, traditionally, you know, fertile kind of maternal figure. But alongside that you have the obligation to, um, to also fulfill your duties as a worker, right? So, you know, in in distinction to um, ideals developing, especially for example, if you look at the 1950s in the in in American and European culture, right, the sort of um, emergence of the you know the happy the happy housewife who devotes herself to to caring for for the family and the children in the Soviet Union. You know, From the 1930s onward, you really you didn't have a choice. You were supposed to excel at both. You were supposed to be a devoted worker, um, a devoted crusader for, you know, the solidification of Soviet values and for the success of the Soviet project. Um, So you were never let off the hook on that front. But after the 1920s, you know, from really the time of Stalin onwards with, you know, some variations, but really from that time onwards, you were expected to be a great worker and a great mother. Um, and to produce as many children as possible. Hmm.
1: Four. So it's a double burden really that, that is put on women at this time. A double
0: burden, in fact, some historians have referred to it really as a triple burden because you not only had your obligations as a worker and as a mother, but you were also supposed to you know, be involved in political agitation and political work and that kind of you know, extracurricular um, those kinds of extracurricular activities designed to, to sort of spread Soviet values.
1: Right. And so despite this hallowed notion of motherhood in the Stalin years, it sounds like actual motherhood was rather difficult.
0: I think that 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 is a very um, safe conclusion to <laughs> draw <laughs> I mean, you certainly had, you know, from the beginning till the end of of the Soviet period, the emphasis was was on um, you know industrialization, on expanding the industrial base, on on the growth of the defense industry, certainly into the certainly into the period of the Cold War. It was not on you know ensuring you know it was a command economy, right? So everything was centrally determined and centrally planned, and There was never any, there were always very limited resources devoted to ensuring adequate supply of consumer goods, you know, so, you know, most women, you know, and I think both anecdotes and statistics bear this out, you know, spent the majority of their time, you know, waiting in line for one thing, you know, trying to ensure that their families were, you know, clothed and fed and that, you know, pretty much took up um, all of their time.
1: So, mm-hmm. what about the 1990s then, the third period of upheaval that you treat? Um, how did the literature of the 1990s and the 2000s deal with notions of motherhood after the post Soviet era?
0: Well the chapter where I focus on the nineteen nineties I think is probably the most the most complex and the most multi-layered in the sense that I, I draw on a variety of of sources in addition to I mentioned already the the novella by Petrashevska that kind of inspired um, the whole project. Um, I also look at a film from really the Right on the cusp of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the beginning of the, it was still um, it was still the Soviet Union when that film was released. But it's really a film that I think reflects this kind of this this um, time that was you know right before the right on the brink of of the collapse. Um, I also look at um, the Chechen conflicts of the nineteen nineties as an extra, obviously an extra literary event. But I look at um, two maternal figures that emerge from that conflict Um, one was the activist mother. So um, there was a committee that was actually a committee of soldiers mothers that actually emerged in the 1980s in the wake of the of the Afghanistan war, um, but that continued its activism into the 1990s. And they advocated, you know, for soldiers' rights, for um, transparency within the Russian military. Um, you know, sometimes they spent um, quite a bit of time just trying to ensure that that a soldier's body would be returned um, from, from a conflict area. Um, and they very clearly utilized this moral authority that the mythology of Russian motherhood invested them with in order to kind of um, take on, you know, bureaucratic intransigence, to take on, you know, very high-ranking Russian officials to try to, to accomplish, you know, positive change, um, to try to, for example, the Russian military has a terrible um, uh, tradition of, of hazing, so they, they attempted to kind of try to change um, that culture. Um, so on the one hand, you have this, you know, very noble mother who is, you know, fighting on behalf of, of her son. Um, kind of using all of the force of of collective Russian maternal mythology in order to accomplish you know valiant goals, and then on the other hand, you have this um, the Chechen female terrorists um, who were using violent means to try to avenge the deaths of their um, their sons, their not only their sons, their sons, their husbands, um, other family members as well. And I use I, I use sort of the dichotomy between those two female figures. Um, to parallel another really interesting, I think, um, dichotomy that developed in in the post Soviet period in the nineteen nineties, which is between, on the one hand, this um, tendency to endow mothers with this superhuman ability to save Russian society, right? So in a way, um, the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers sort of harnessed this belief that you know Russian society is in such dire straits, and the only the only force capable of of saving us now are the mothers, right? In fact, Andrei Kanchalovsky, who is a fairly well-known film director, he's done some work in Hollywood as well, was quoted as saying that the only force that we have in Russian society that binds us together is motherhood. And he he was quoted as saying this um, in the 1990s. So on the one hand, the sort of exaggerated um, tendency to endow mothers with the superhuman strength to save um, the nation during this, you know, period of tumult and chaos, um, and then on the other hand, to really attribute apocalyptic meaning to um, certain sociological indicators from the 1990s, and I'm referring specifically here to um, the declining birth rate. So, in the early 1990s, Russia had uh, a point where it had. Negative population growth, so fewer uh, fewer children were being born than um, people were dying. You know, pe- fewer people children were being born than was necessary to replenish um, the population, and so this was treated in the media as a really cataclysmic kind of apocalyptic event. And if you read the both the um, the popular media and academic. Um, essays and cultural commentary from the 1990s, you notice this obsession with, you know, the potential dying out of the Russian race, right? And why is it that, you know, A, mothers are having future children? You know, what does this mean for us as a, as a, as a people? Um, and on the other hand, you had over-exaggerated, I would say, focus on instances of, you um mothers who either either abandoned their her her mothers who abandoned their children, mothers who mistreated their children, you know, instances of abuse, which, of course, are unfortunately a fact of life in in every society. But what um, was exceptional, I think, about the way that these instances were um, covered in the Russian media was that there was consistently the sort of tendency to attribute again, this kind of grave apocalyptic meaning to the fact that mothers are not having as many children as they used to have. And that the, 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 the supposedly iconic Russian mother is no longer capable of reaching the kind of the heights of, of um, compassion and warmth and love and self-sacrifice um, that she was supposedly uh, always able to reach. Um, and then, so the, so I, I sort of I structure my chapter according to, to those um, those parallels, those dichotomies, and then I look at um, some works of literature that I argue are sort of hastening uh, <laughs> hastening the dismantling of the myth of the iconic uh, Russian mother. And in particular, I spend the the majority of the chapter um, the chapter that deals with with literary texts. I spend on a writer. Named whom I mentioned already earlier, Nadezhda uh, Petrovskaya, and I think she's an apt of concluding uh, author with which to to end my study because her maternal characters not only engage in the most um, sophisticated kind of psychological uh, t- terror <laughs> on their children, but she's also her or her maternal characters rather are also extremely cognizant of the fact that there is such a thing as the iconic, the mythological Russian mother. And they really sort of twist the aspects, the characteristics of this iconic Russian mother in an extremely manipulative way in order to accomplish their goals. While at the same time, and have not ever her, her narrators are almost to a one um, extremely unstable And we as readers never really quite can discern whether or not the mother herself thinks she's actually being a good mother by doing what she's doing because she's so um, sort of consumed or saturated with the mythology of the iconic Russian mother that it's hard to, it's hard to know. And that's one of the things I think that makes her literature so interesting and so complex is that we as readers can never definitively say ah, uh, this is a mother who knows she's being bad, <laughs> or is this a mother who uh, actually thinks that she, or who actually sincerely believes that her actions are motivated by an adherence to the mythological, the iconic, you know, warm, loving, self-sacrificial Russian mother.
1: In your conclusion, Jenny, you ask, you ask a question. I wonder if you'll answer it for us, and I'll, re- <laughs> I'll rephrase it. Um, does the figure of the bad mother throughout Russian literary history mean that the maternal figure is totally central in Russian culture? Um, Or does this recurring bad mother figure over time, and particularly during these moments of upheaval that you describe, does it mean that the maternal myth might be coming to an end? Hmm. Um, I think...
0: I guess yes is probably the answer to. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, I think, you know, on the the one hand, the fact that you have this figure, you know, so rooted in pre-Christian and Christian belief systems that is still so central and so um, such a touchstone for cultural development. I think that that the fact that we still have mothers so centrally in Russian cultural production, whether they're good or bad, ultimately does reaffirm I think the continuing importance, the continuing centrality of of that um, figure in, in Russian culture. You know, but then on the other hand, I think you know when you have um, writers, you know, from Celtic of in, in the 19th century to Petrushevskaya in in the twentieth and into the twenty first century sort of mocking and and attacking um the iconic Russian mother, I think that that ultimately does kind of problematize this notion that motherhood is something that binds Russians together right I think that's ultimately maybe the bad mother's um, most uh, most forceful, most significant assault on on the mythology of the Russian mother is that you know if we have if we if we have authors and other producers of culture who continue to present um, a mother who does not neutralize familial chaos, who does not put her own um, needs uh, behind those of her children, that ultimately kind of problematizes this notion of, of motherhood as an institution, as something that is capable of kind of transcending um, the chaos and the tumult of, of these periods that I've, that I've focused on. So I guess yes and yes is the short <laughs> the short answer to your question.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much Jenny for talking to us about your book Women with a Thirst for Destruction, the Bad Mother in Russian Culture. But before we end, I wonder if you would mind telling us a little bit about a second or a next project that you're working on?
0: Well, sure. Actually, my next project is quite unrelated to, to this earlier project. I was a theater major as an undergraduate, and I've always wanted to kind of go back and, and focus and develop that particular um, uh, line of, of, of research and scholarship. So my new project is about um, post-Soviet drama. It's about um, a group of, of dramatists who merged right around the same time that Vladimir Putin assumed power, so late 1990s, early 2000s, um, and they're quite young. Most of them are under 40. Many of them are under 30. And you know, generically, thematically, formally, they're quite distinct. But I think um, as a movement, it's a really exciting and dynamic of development within recent Russian culture. So that's what my next book project will, will be about. So no no mothers for now.
1: <laughs> well, that, that <laughs> no sounds... more mothers for the time being. For the time being. Well, that sounds like a fascinating new project. We look forward to hearing about it perhaps on New Books Network network in a few years months maybe thank you so yes <laughs> months might be optimistic maybe maybe, maybe a year, <laughs> a year or two. okay well we've taken up a lot of your time thank you so much jenny cameter thank you so much it was a pleasure speaking with you